morning, church. Good to see you all. Welcome, everybody, joining us online. As Pastor Chris said, after being a month out of our study in Genesis, we're going to jump back in today. But before we do that, I want to remind you, not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday is November 8th. It's Election Day. I want to encourage all of you who are eligible to vote to go out and do so. Why? Well, using your vote is actually a way for you to love your neighbor. You say, how so? Well, it's simple. The prophet Jeremiah tells the ancient people of God, as you enter into the land, as you enter into the city, he encourages them to seek the welfare of the city they're in. In other words, do good for the city. So as we use our votes to vote for those officials who best uphold or have policies that are in alignment with the values and uh, principles of the scripture, then there is good done within our city. Now, the challenge is determining exactly where any individual candidate actually stands on the issue, because it seems like more than ever, these grenades are just being thrown across the aisle, and it's like a candidate is known more for who they stand against than what they actually stand for, and so it can be hard to sort all of that out. So there's a lot of different voter guides that are out there. One that I like to recommend is azvoterguide.com, azvoterguide.com. And they do a great job of essentially just asking very specific questions relating to all of the relevant issues, uh, whether it be immigration, care for the poor, crime, uh, abortion, economics, just very straightforward questions, and then the candidate can either decide to answer or not, and very often the candidates do answer, and they answer in detail. So it gives you a sort of a front row seat in understanding where each one uh, stands. So azvoterguide.com, you can check it out. It's also unique in that this voter guide can be highly personalized to your specific uh, location and locality, uh, including also a local district officials and elections there as well. So azvoterguide.com. Now, if you got your Bibles, we are in Genesis chapters 40 and 41. Just by way of review, we left off with Pastor Hudson about a month ago, bringing us the life of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph was the second youngest of 12 boys. But he had a really unique place in the family because essentially he was his dad's favorite. And it showed because dad gave him this really special coat which seems to indicate the place of highest privilege in the family. It was, it was a, a, essentially a wardrobe that signified the rights and privileges of a firstborn son, although he wasn't the firstborn. So now imagine if you're one of the other brothers, especially if you're the firstborn and you're looking at this little brother and you're like, hey, wait a minute, what's up with that? I think I told you my mom had four kids in less than six years four kids in less than six years. And then 15 years later, I was born. Can you say accident? I don't care, I'm here. But I know what it's like at times to have older brothers view younger brother. Imagine the younger brother being exalted to the place of primacy within the family and being given this external garment to prove it. <laughs> so, of course, the older brothers are out of their minds. They're angry. They're jealous. 
Young Joseph doesn't help himself much because in his naivety, he has these dreams wherein his brothers bow down to him. By the way, you're going to see the fulfillment of these dreams in the most unusual way soon. But then he has the immaturity to share this with his brothers. And so they hate him even more. They want him dead. They violently assault him, strip him of this outer garment, throw him in a pit. Then they decide, well, let's not kill him. Let's make some money off of him. They sell him to traders who are on their way to Egypt. He winds up as a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar, who's actually a man of great influence because he is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. While he's there serving Potiphar and his household, Potiphar's wife takes notice of this young guy. Must have been something about him. Good-looking, attractive. She's married, but she's drawn to him. So she attempts to seduce him. She's very forward. Our society is interesting today, isn't it? Because it promotes this kind of attitude, not just on the part of men, but on the part of women now, too. And the young man resists her advances. She's offended. Accuses him of sexual assault. Because she has all the power and authority, Joseph is imprisoned. It's just a young guy. Uh, Rejected by his family. Sold into slavery imprisoned for doing what is right. You would think that after all this, he would become so bitter at God. You know, have you ever gone through difficult circumstances and you're just kind of like, God, really? You start to get angry, kind of builds up inside you like, this isn't fair. This shouldn't be happening to me. I mean, this kid has every excuse in the book to be upset, to become bitter. But he doesn't get bitter. He actually becomes better. How so? Four times in the text as he's engaging with Potiphar's wife and disengaging, the text explicitly says God was with him. That's the key. Christian, if you are convinced in your mind and heart that God is with you, When you do what is right and suffer for it, you can make it through. If you're convinced that God is with you. Because what this means is that God has some larger purposes that you don't fully understand. And you might sit there and think, oh, I get it. God has bigger purposes. But I'm like stuck. I'm like in prison right now. When we read through the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, essentially it says, you know why the Old Testament is there? It's there to teach us. The stories, the examples, they're there for our instruction. And the life of Joseph is real. And there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of heart. I was reminded of Psalm 23. The Bible's super candid in the way that it's written. It's not like, you know, unicorns, rainbows, and butterflies, and everything's great when you give your life to God. 
there's still a lot of heartache. Psalm 23 says that God leads us through those dark valleys. God doesn't lead us around them. What I want is I want the around part. I don't really want the through part. So why, why is it like that? Theologians refer to this as theodicy or how do we understand and make sense of bad things happening, not even just to good people, but why do bad things happen to God's people? <laughs> you know, why doesn't he spare us from those things? I think in part, and what you see in the life of Joseph, the answer is really simple. Because people are watching. And the truest test of who you are and who your God is comes in what, hap- what happens when you're, you're in pain and you're in heartache and you're in unwanted circumstances. Then, then things, are re- things become real in that moment. People are watching Joseph. This kid had every reason to abandon God, but he doesn't. So he's 28 years old. He spent most of his uh, young life as a slave and in prison. We don't know exactly how long he's been in this dungeon, but all of a sudden, these two high-profile men enter. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, that would be his prison sentencing, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. We don't get the details on this. We just know that in some way they've, they've offended the king. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So these two guys are responsible for the king's food and the king's drink. The bread maker, he's responsible for what the king eats. The cupbearer is responsible for what the king drinks. The cupbearer had an interesting title. He was referred to as the man with pure hands because nothing went into the king's mouth without first going through the hands of the cupbearer, both food and Drink. So this guy had to, had to be loyal, you know? I mean, he had to be trustworthy because if someone wanted to assassinate the king and poison his food, you had to convince the cupbearer to be in on it. Couldn't be bribed, couldn't be bought, but he did something to offend the king. Now, he and the guy who was in charge of the food are both here with Joseph in prison. And by the way, Joseph is assigned lowest man on the totem pole because essentially... He is their attendant. He's a prisoner who is a slave to other prisoners. So I've never been in prison, but I would imagine that it would give you some pretty crazy thoughts and dreams. And that's what happens next, verse 5. So one night, both of these guys dream, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who are confined in the prison. Each has his own dream, and each dream has its own interpretation. Now, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were Troubled, So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? You know, like Joseph knows, he's like, I I can see it on your face. Something's wrong. They said to him, we've had these dreams and there's no one to tell us the meaning of these dreams. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to, and this is interesting, the word for God here is not the word for any of the Egyptian gods, and there were many of them, The word is Elohim, which is the name of the Hebrew God. Don't interpretations belong to Elohim? So please, tell them to me. Now, 
What we read in these uh, Old Testament narratives fits perfectly with what we know about ancient history. For example, we know that the Egyptians were out of their minds with dreams and interpretations because they believed that when you slept, that put you in contact with the spirit world. And when you were dreaming, you were communicating with the spirit. So they were, they were really into dream interpretation. In fact, there were men whose specific job was to interpret the dreams. Additionally, we have ancient literature books that are all about dream interpretation. So they were really, really into it. When you slept, that put you in contact with the spirits. So if you had this dream, you wanted to know what exactly does this mean? So they were really, really into it. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that here's Joseph. He's been rejected. He's been beat down, falsely accused. He's a prisoner and he's told, now it's your responsibility to take care of these other prisoners. This dude's gone through a lot of pain in his young life. And yet, he has the ability to look at these other guys and go, hey, I can see that you're hurting. This is real remarkable because if I'm Joseph, I'm like, I ain't taking care of anybody. I'm gonna figure out how I can dig my way out of this place. And yet here he is and he's like, you're in pain. How can I help? I actually think this is why pain comes into your life and my life. It sensitizes us to what's going on in the lives of those around us. I was talking with a young man this week. He's in his mid-20s, and he's just struggling. He's struggling like so many who suffer with depression and anxiety and fear. At times, it's so gripping. He can't leave his house. He's calling in. He's not going to work, and he's just, he just, it's just really, really difficult for him. Now, if you suffer with depression and you encounter someone who suffers with depression, you're probably not going to say to that person, well, here's what you need to do. You want to know what will help? Just go shopping. That'll lift your depression. Are you serious? You have no idea. You know, if you've ever been like really lonely and you notice others who are lonely, your heart goes out to them in a really unique way because you don't just see it, but you feel it. I think the greatest leaders that I have known and been around personally, they're the ones who have taken their personal pain and God has used it to sanctify them so that they are a blessing to those around them. And what happens is then you become a great leader because people want to follow you because they feel like you really understand who they are. This is a young guy, totally mistreated, has every excuse in the world to be bitter at God, but he doesn't. Instead, he enters into the pain of others and he wants to help. Notice Joseph says, Elohim is the one who interprets dreams, not me. Tremendous, tremendous self-awareness here and humility. He says, look, I can give you the interpretation, but actually it's not me. It's gonna be God who's gonna give me the interpretation for you. So Joseph tells the cupbearer, let's hear it. Give it to me. Let's see what God has to say. Verse nine. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, so in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. 
And I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. And then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. I hear you, Pharaoh's like fresh squeezed grape juice, just like, just like I used to do for him. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are actually three days. In three days, notice the wording here, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Remember that phrase. Pharaoh's going to lift up your head. And he's going to restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. When this happens, I need you to remember me. Don't forget about me. Remember me. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So let me summarize what happens next. The guy who's in charge of Pharaoh's food is standing there and he, he listens and he hears this favorable interpretation of the dream and he's like, me next, me next. Let me tell you about my dream. So I had this dream where I had these three baskets on top of my head and they were filled with bread and the birds came and they started eating out of these baskets. What does it mean? And Joseph says, well, you had a nightmare. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you exactly what it means. In three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and he's going to remove it from your body. And then he's going to take your dead body, he's going to hang it from a tree, and the birds are going to come and eat it. Wah, 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 right? It's like, oh. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you're going to die soon. Well, three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday, verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, and he also lifted up the head of the chief baker among his servants. But he lifted up the head of the cupbearer in such a way as to have him be noticed and honored. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Exactly what Joseph said. And Joseph's there going, any minute now, any minute now, that gate's going to open and I'm out of here. I'm, oh, I'm so out of here. I'm going to be set free. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. I'm really glad this is in the Bible. One of the things that Joseph's life teaches us is that disappointments are essential to spiritual growth. One of the things Joseph's life teaches us is that disappointments are actually essential for spiritual growth, and here's why. Because our disappointments in God demand more faith and trust. And this is a moment where Joseph is being asked to drop everything he has right on God. I love what V. Edmund Raymond wrote. He said, quote, delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. 
So the reality is the experience of delay is all through the Bible. Joseph expected to be liberated very soon, but the days passed into weeks, months, two full years goes by, disappointment. Abraham, he waited a long time for the promise of a son. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness, total obscurity, and that was God's training ground for him to become a leader at the age of 80. David spent a long time in the wilderness learning how to king it by being faithful and loyal and capable in very small things until God placed him in a position of authority. Two full years go by, half his life in prison, and in God's timing, this happens. Verse 41, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. I don't know if they had, like, mushrooms back in the day or what, you know? It's like, this, this things are going to get really weird here in these dreams. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some bad Egyptian whatever. I don't know. So, you know, you have a dream, you wake up, and you're like, oh, wow, man, that was crazy. Whew, that was just a dream, just a dream. Now, the Egyptians didn't see it that way. They're like, I had this crazy dream. What does it mean? I have to know. He falls back asleep, dreams again. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. Pharaoh wakes up again. Behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. These are the professional dream interpreters. Pharaoh told them his dreams. There's a problem. None can interpret what Pharaoh uh, had visualized in his sleep. So not, not super uncommon for the day. Um, cows would have been everywhere, especially along the Nile. In the heat of the summer, cows would often relax, find shelter from the heat in the water. They were found on the banks of the Nile because that's where the grass was lush, common sight. That whole area of the, that Nile that the Nile fed the whole valley. It's very, very fertile. But then things get weird because these seven emaciated cows appear and they are looking at the plump cows and then they start eating them. And then in the other dream, there's this wheat that's healthy. Right? Then there's seven really unhealthy grains that look over and end up devouring the ones that are fit. What does all this mean? Uh, well, this is where God begins to elevate Joseph in a way that he could never have imagined. Um, in this moment, the cupbearer's like, oh yeah, wait a minute. Oh, I just remembered something. There's this guy who interprets dreams and he's really good at it. And he's in prison right now. And I think he can help just like that, just like that. Two years after the cupbearer is elevated, Joseph 
is now appearing before the most powerful man in the known world. He's brought in. He listens and responds with this. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. Notice the humility. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He takes no credit, no credit for the interpretation. He's like, I'm, I'm just the, the messenger. So he tells Pharaoh what, what, uh, what this is about. He says, Pharaoh, good news and bad news. Good news is there's going to be seven years of great abundance. It's going to be incredibly prosperous. There's going to be so much wheat and grain pouring in. You won't, you won't know what to do with it all. But you should know what to do with it because what's going to follow are seven very lean years of famine. That's the interpretation of your dream. But then what Joseph does is he presses it a little bit. And this is leadership. Because in the right way, he says, I can help you. Now, many would see Pharaoh as the enemy. Joseph sees it as an opportunity. He says, let me help you. I actually uh, have a suggestion for you. And I think if you follow my advice, I think it's going to go really, really well for you. So to Pharaoh's credit, he accepts the interpretation. And then he listens to what Joseph has, has to say. Verse, verse 33. By the way, let me say this. I think it's important for me to say this right now, especially in light of the times that we live, not only for our nation, but uh, the world at large. Um, we should be reminded that in, in these very uncertain days, human leaders don't actually make history. With all the craziness that you see going on, human leaders actually don't make history. Uh, God does. God not only provides the interpretation of the dream, but God also gives the dream. It's like if you're playing chess, but God is playing both sides. He's playing both sides. And he's playing both sides at the same time, meaning that he's in total control of everything that happens on the chessboard. Um, I think perhaps the greatest proof of this is when Jesus himself is standing before this guy named Pilate. Pilate's the local governor. He has the power to execute Jesus in the most horrible way. And he knows it. And he tells Jesus, don't you understand? Your life is in my hands. I have the power of life and death over you. You know, almost as if to say, show me some respect. Do you know who you're dealing with? Anytime you have to appeal to your, your title in your position, you've lost real authority. So he says, I have this power over you. And Jesus responds in the most casual way and very calmly. He says, well, actually, you wouldn't have any power unless God gave it to you. So that's kind of crazy, right? Because this is, that's why I say God is kind of on both sides of this chessboard, moving and arranging things. And we, we don't see what's coming four or five, six moves ahead. We only look at this one move and we're like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder why you did that. Oh, because the outcome is ultimately going to be this. Got it. We don't get to see all those future plays, but God knows them all. Uh, and so rulers actually don't make history. They only serve the history that God creates. So check this out, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, Joseph says. Here's my advice. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Set it aside, right? Store it up, verse 35. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a, reverse, uh, a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. It's interesting because you know what one of the most Googled searches is right now? Prepping. You realize that? 
Some of you are doing it. Prepping. Why is that? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. What's going to happen? What's going on? What's going on? What's going to happen with Russia, with Ukraine? What's going to happen in our own country? What's going to happen with the election cycle? I need to be prepared, man. How much are those solar panels? Joseph says, we're going to be prepared for the purpose of being, being able to help those who are in need so that the land may not perish through the famine. By land, he means people. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, what's up with this guy? Can we find a man like this anywhere? In whom is the spirit, this is crazy, because here's the Egyptian king acknowledging the Hebrew God, is the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You're going to be over my, over my house. And, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. You tell them what to do, they're going to do it. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So essentially... Pharaoh, or Joseph becomes like the prime minister, the number two guy in charge in what is the most powerful kingdom of the known world at this time. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all uh, the land of Egypt. So there you go, just like that. This um, uh, Egyptian ruler praises Joseph's God. Uh, never underestimate your influence as a godly man or woman in any environment that you're in, especially when you do what is right. Christian, you have the ability to influence kingdoms. You have the ability to influence kingdoms by virtue of the way in which you live your life. Uh, Joseph had this really big view of God and he maintained it in adversity. And that's so, that's so important. Um, I, I heard the story, uh, R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he tells the story of a um, Dr. Wilson, a very famous uh, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And one day, he was invited to attend a sermon that was being given by a former student who had graduated 12 years earlier. And it was known that Dr. William would attend these visiting sermons only once, only once. He would only, he would only go to a visiting student's sermon only one time. No matter how many times a student came, he would only go one time. He would sit, he would listen. And after this student finished preaching, Dr. Wilson went up to him and said, I know that you are going to be a man of influence in your preaching. And the reason why is because you have a big God. Not only do you teach what God's word says, but you actually believe it. You believe that God is big. You are a big godder, he would say. You're going to do fine. What is your view of God? How big is your God? Because the reality is you're probably in some way relating to Joseph, whether it's like, hey, listen, um, I see other people being advanced when I'm still in prison. Uh, I've done what's right, and um, it's not going so well for me. In every way, the life of Joseph is actually the life of Jesus. When we started this series, I said, the book of Genesis points forward to the cross. It all points forward to Jesus. So consider the parallels. Here's Joseph. He's falsely accused. That's what happened to Jesus. 
Joseph was totally in the right. Well, so is Jesus. Joseph gets punished. Well, Jesus got punished. Through Joseph's righteousness, the people of Egypt would be saved and his own family will be saved, as we'll see shortly. This is the break, though. Through Jesus, every, every family on earth would be blessed. Through his death, burial, and resurrection would come the forgiveness of sins. So what's really cool, guys, is how the Bible fits together so beautifully. So in the very beginning, you read about these two humans, Adam and Eve. They disobey God. Sin enters the world. Sin causes us to hide from each other and from God. God develops this rescue plan. He's like, I care about him too much to let him go. So here's what's going to happen. The penalty for their waywardness is going to actually fall on someone else. Then my justice will be satisfied because God has to remain just. He has to remain true to his nature. He can't turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that we do. So all the wrongs that we do is going to fall on someone else. So he tells Eve, part of the consequence to you is, well, actually, you're going to give birth to an offspring, the seed of a woman who will crush the works of the devil, but this offspring is going to suffer a wound himself. But through his woundedness, he will prove to be a savior to everybody on the planet. That's, the, that's in the very opening books of the Bible. Everything else is a storytelling, a narrative storytelling of who Jesus is in every character, including Joseph. So if you're reading the New Testament and you're a first century Jew, you're being reminded, oh, wow, this Jesus guy reminds me of what happened to Joseph. And the author is like, exactly. Exactly, because it's all a setup to Jesus. It's all this big neon sign that points forward to the cross. That's how beautiful the Bible is when it fits together. People open up the Bible and they're like, I don't understand what it means. I don't know. I just kind of plop in somewhere. That's the beauty of starting in Genesis, because you get this overarching meta narrative that tells you God so loved the world from the beginning that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. The parallels jump off the page. So this is why when Jesus was about to leave the earth, he's sharing this Passover meal with, with uh, his followers. And he says, I want you to remember something. I've been with you for three years. We've known each other. We've lived together. You've seen some, me do some crazy supernatural stuff. But what I want you to remember of all those things is this. Remember my death. And everybody's kind of like, huh? Yeah, remember my death because my death is actually what's going to bring you life. This is what Christians call communion or the Lord's Supper. So it's a really sacred thing for us, and Christians have been doing this for the last 2,000 years since Jesus commanded us to do that. The Apostle Paul comes on the scene, and he says, hey, this is such a sacred moment that you should really spend some time thinking personally about what it means for you. Get yourself right. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. Certainly, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, taking it, that would be taking it in an unworthy manner. Taking it lightly would be taking it in an unworthy manner, too. The, John tells us that God is always faithful, and if we confess our sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Man, we need that. I need that every single day. That's what draws us closer to the heart of Jesus. When you understand the grace, mercy, and forgiveness that, that God has given to you through the cross, man, that makes you want to extend it to everybody around you. That's the difference maker. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do exactly what Jesus told us to do. So let's prepare our, our hearts and our minds. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes in solitude just to do that. Father, as we enter into this really sacred space, we're just reminded of the good words of your book. 
and the life of Joseph, how it reminds us of Jesus, just even in seed form, Jesus bringing so much more. But we ask that you would speak to every single heart in the room, no matter where that heart is at. Lord, where encouragement is needed, provide it. Lord, in those moments of guilt, let that serve as a motivator that turns us back toward the cross and recognizes your grace that is amazing. So Father, speak to us. Give us clarity. And as always, it's for our good and to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.